This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. This is a Radio Labour World Report recorded on Friday, February 16th, 2024. I'm Mark Belante. In the report this week, a special program about anti-black racism and education. The Labour Start report about union events and singing. You and I are different, but we're both great. Together we can make a world where we feel safe. This is Radio Labour. The need for a better appreciation of the contributions, history, and culture of black people is being reinforced by the celebration of Black History Month in Canada and the United States. Black History Month, which is celebrated every February, reinforces the idea that much closer attention has to be paid to issues such as anti-black racism and especially how to address issues in the educational system. To find out more about anti-black racism and educational practices, I talked to Karen Brown. Ms. Brown is the president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, a province in Canada. The ETFO represents some 83,000 teachers and other educators. Ms. Brown, the daughter of an auto worker, is the first black person to head the federation. The union recently submitted a brief to the government about anti-black racism. I asked Ms. Brown about the examples of anti-black racism the ETFO included in its submission. In our submission, we included examples of bias and systemic barriers that lead to challenges with retention of black teachers. So when we're talking about the education system, we're talking about why are our black teachers leaving the profession in droves? Why basically they're hitting challenges and barriers, and then they're leaving the profession. So whether it's looking at things in regards to the evaluation process, feeling unfairly treated within the evaluation process, perhaps feeling over police within the system, micromanaged in regards to their professional judgment and their ability as a black educator. Or uh, we have also seen higher incidences of black and racialized teachers when it comes to uh, issues around allegations. So there is almost a, a bias uh, in regards to when there is an allegation made against a teacher. Retention is one of the challenges. We also talked about a lack of representation in faculties of education among teacher candidates. We're talking about anti-black racism. Why, when you're looking at faculties of education in regards to who is going through those programs, we see a very small uh, amount of educators who identify as black. So there must be some of these systemic barriers or biases in the selection process, identification process, in regards to our teacher candidates. Uh, we want the teachers in the classroom to reflect our, our students. We know that Ontario is very diverse, and the Faculty of Education should reflect that in regards to the graduates from high school towards the faculties, or even those who enter in, in later adulthood, we're not seeing that reflection. So the third example we're looking at biases and systemic barriers. We need to look at anti-black racism training from the perspective of administrators, trustees, and all of those who are leadership positions within the school board. So what are these systems doing and how are they responding to issues of anti-black racism? So the administrators who are responsible for hiring, are they hiring a staff reflective of the population? 
Are they hiring black teachers? When we're looking at trustees, are they holding the school board accountable for their hiring practices? Are they having issues around equity and inclusion? And for those who are in other leadership positions within the school board, whether it's a superintendent or whatever area, how are they responding to their own biases and instead of barriers why various areas within the, the school board leadership don't have black employees? So when you're looking at it from a bias and a systemic point of view, those are the three categories that we were looking at. Retention, representation within the faculties of education, and looking at the, the system where those who are in positions of leadership who can impact and actually drive change. You know, we're all stakeholders in the education system, and so all those individuals that I mentioned are stakeholders, and everyone is impacted by uh, racism in different forms whether it's educators, students, parents who come into the school system who are entering their children want to see a greater representation and they want to see that there's an understanding and a reflection of Black excellence throughout our education system, moving from just looking from perspective of oppression and uh, people that are enslaved to celebrating Black excellence and moving forward in that direction. When you say that Black people are leaving the profession. What effect does that have on the students who don't see a reflection of themselves? They don't see Black teachers. What does that do to the students? I mean, that has an impact on all students, whether it's a Black student or a non-Black student. First of all, in the perspective of a, of, a, of a Black or racialized student, they don't see themselves reflected there. They don't see that as something that they can aspire to and achieve to. So if you start school and kindergarten and in grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four, grade five, grade six, grade seven, grade eight, you never encounter a black teacher or a black administrator. Uh, you don't see yourself attaining those positions. You don't see that reflected. It's not ingrained within you that is achievable. And it's also not ingrained in other students who aren't black from other communities. So it's good for every student to see that reflected, to see that uh, teachers who are black, who are racialized and diverse, are able to engage in the education profession and our leaders within the system as well. It's not just monolithic. It's not those who are from a European or a white ancestry. So it's really important for all students to see that Black individuals can, can thrive outside of the traditional areas that they might see in, in sports or other things. That within the field of academia, there is the potential for that, and it's real. They see it. They're interacting every day with, with Black leaders, showing that knowledge base, showing that excellence, showing that representation, and everyone sees that. So it's a benefit for everyone. We are able to bring our culture, our ideas. It just it really enriches the experience of students. The Federation has called for a strategy from the provincial government and school boards to address discrimination and underrepresentation within the education system. What would this strategy consist of, and how would it be implemented? Well, when we think about this strategy, it can include a few things. We talked about the implementation of tracking race-based data across the education sector. So we're looking at students, we're looking at employees, we're looking at administrators, superintendents, and trustees. So we're tracking to see who is it within their system, who is, who is your population, as to what are you doing in regards to the, the curriculum to reflect your, your students, but then who are your employees? You're talking about these policies and procedures, 
But is that reflective in your hiring practices? Is that reflective, I said before, in your administrators, in your superintendents, and trustees? So tracking actually holds them accountable. You've said something, but is that what's actually in practice? And it's more than just reaching a target. It's really striving to aim to diversify the workforce and really looking at how are we targeting the needs of particular students. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top stories section included links to multiple stories regarding the news that the number of strikes in the United States more than doubled last year. This is being taken as yet another indication that USian unions are experiencing a resurgence. Our top stories section carried a link to our very own podcast this week, an interview with a trade union leader fighting to have the Israeli government allow 200,000 Palestinian workers to return to their jobs in Israel as an economic crisis looms over the West Bank. And from Finland, we have ongoing coverage of the rolling political strikes there as unions go head-to-head with the national government over its plans to roll back workers' rights and social protections. This week, over 130,000 public transport, daycare, and industrial production workers walked off the job for 48 hours. Also, top stories this week were items about how unions in Latin America are challenging so-called algorithmic management, the attempted assassination of a Turkish garment workers union leader, and an attempt by a Georgian coalition of unions to have a minimum wage deemed a human right there. But my favorite top story of the week is actually from the week before last, the news that the Global Union Federation Industrial has been deemed an undesirable organization by the Russian government. On our Working Women news page, you'll find stories about preparations for national general strikes by women workers across Europe and Latin America. And there are signs that the calls for a national strike by early childhood educators in Australia on International Women's Day is getting a warm reception. The Canadian and British labor movements might well have been coordinating their actions this week as both made a splash in their respective countries with demands for improvements to parental and maternity leave entitlements for women workers. And from the United States, we have the story of how IATSE, the film production union, reached an agreement with low-budget producers to reduce sexual harassment of workers on set. Stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week include an interview with a workplace safety expert on why union involvement in Canadian workplaces leads to much improved mental health amongst workers, an account from the International Federation of Journalists of the many challenges facing journalists in Gaza, and a large march and demonstration in Australia after the heat-induced death of a construction worker there. As with unions everywhere, the Australian labor movement is moving to ensure that those who work outdoors are protected from the impact of global heating. Other workplace safety stories this week include a report that two Chinese managers have been charged in the deaths of two workers at an industrial facility in Indonesia, and details of a rampage by a Sri Lankan employer who attacked and restrained garment workers who were attempting to attend a union meeting. Our current photo of the week comes to us from Uganda. 
an international solidarity project there run by UniGlobal Union with the support of FNV of the Netherlands, helped Ugandan Carrefour workers secure their first collective agreement and blazed the trail for further organizing campaigns across Africa. The project, entitled Establishing Bridges, Growing Solidarity and Strengthening Collective Bargaining, concluded with an international solidarity summit held in Entebbe, Uganda, late last month. LaborStart hosts online solidarity actions at the request of unions around the world. This week, we'd like to highlight urgent appeals for online solidarity with trade union activists in Panama, Myanmar, Serbia, Georgia, and in Iran. If you can spare just a few seconds, you can do your part in these struggles by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of these and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here are the CBC Kids singing their anti-racism song, Let's Make It Fair. And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our news reports and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. <laughs>